What's up? This is your girl, T. As a black woman in her 30s, I'm constantly trying to figure out life. But the one time of the week where it all seems to come together is on Sundays. <laughs> yeah, that's right, when I talk with my girls at brunch over a glass of champagne. I created this podcast to bring good vibes and open dialogue about various topics from mental health, relationships, personal development, the workspace, to the bubbly that happened over the weekend. Sundays are a time for celebration, rest, and reflection. So welcome to Champagne Sunday. Grab a glass, pop a bottle, and get ready to pour it up. Champagne Sunday is pleased to provide you with social media content for your personal education and informational purposes. Reliance on any information provided by Champagne Sunday or by any person or professional appearing on this podcast is solely at your own risk. Hey, 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 welcome to Champagne Sunday. It's your girl, T. Welcome to another episode of Champagne Sunday. We are here on this wonderful Sunday afternoon. And honestly, I am so tired of it being cold outside. Where is spring? They said, stand up, spring. You weak in the knees. You weak in the knees. And that is true. (laughs) Spring, you got to stand up because I'm just tired of it. It has to be 70 or above or I'm just not feeling it. I'm tired of the rain, the clouds. Where is the sunshine, the flowers, and the fresh spring air? I need it. I need it. Um, But anyway, (laughs) I hope that despite the weather, that everyone is feeling pretty good on this Sunday, that you have your uh, Prosecco or your champagne, perhaps your mimosa, you know, spiked it with a little pineapple or orange juice, and that you're doing and feeling pretty well. We know that Sundays is a time for rest, relaxation, and reflection. And so that being said, I hope that you're thinking about, you know, what you did last week and how you can make this week going forward better, how you can make it um, different in a way that you can grow and learn and just expand yourself, right? Take new steps. And if you had not such a good week last week, again, it's a great opportunity to think about starting fresh, starting new. It's the first of the month. It's April. And so, yes, we definitely want to think about making sure that we're focusing on our goals, we're resting, reflecting, and always relaxing. This is Sunday, you know? So for today, you know, we always have a bubbly or just a moment where we take the time to talk about something that may be positive or something that can help us grow for the new week. So um, our bubbly today, I saw this on Instagram. And I just really thought it was a great piece of advice, especially for our topic today, what we'll be talking about, and which I'll get into. And um, so this is what the, the quote said. It said, knowing when your voice is not needed in a conversation is an important for- form of discernment. Knowing when your voice is not needed in a conversation is an important form of discernment. And I think as one of my favorite podcasters always say, shutting up is free. (laughs) It's free. Like you don't always have to talk. You don't always have to comment. But I think because we live in a day and time where we have social media and we have things like podcasts and comment sections and 
feeds that everybody wants to comment. Everybody has something to say, but sometimes it's just not meant, like sometimes it's just not needed. It's not necessary. And I wish that a lot of us would realize that a lot of things that we talk or say, whether it's on social media or whether it's in a group chat or it's two people in person, that is just not necessary. It's that sometimes you just have to know when your voice is really needed in the conversation and when it's not. And I think a great example of this too, again, thinking about my uncle Ronnie um, who passed recently and at his funeral, they were speaking about his presence and how he was um, such a respectable person and that everyone really listened when he talked. Like when he talked, everyone listened. And I think the important thing that they were saying is that he allowed people to voice their opinions. Like people would, you know, go back and forth. Um, like when we think about like the church boards, people would kind of be disagreeing about certain things And he would sit back and he would listen, he would observe. And then when he was ready to talk, he talked and it was important and people listened, like it had an impact, right? And I think it's really important that people really stand back, sometimes observe, take things in. And so when you say something and when you do contribute to the conversation, it's meaningful. It makes sense. People are listening. People um, may not always agree with what you're saying, but they're listening to what you're saying. Um, and a lot of times I think people just chime in and just always have something to say. And it's just not necessary. It's not needed. Sometimes it's mean. Sometimes it's, it's um, just uncalled for. And so I think a lot of times that we just have to have this uh, perspective where we're really knowing when our voice is not needed in a conversation, when it's okay, it's okay to be quiet. Yeah. We are going to talk about mental health language and how people are using it all willy-nilly. The episode is going to be called Let's Stop or maybe let's not. I'm all for this new rise in mental health and everyone wanting to talk about mental health and being a little more acceptable or accepting of mental health and not really playing into a lot of the stigma. And we see it in social media with hashtags and reels and posts and stories and all the great things. We just have so much information in this day and age about mental health. We have different apps like Cerebral and Talkspace and um, I can't remember the other one, but we have just so many apps that we can use and just resources. But what we are not going to do and what we're going to stop, like, let's stop just using mental health language all willy nilly. Like, let's just stop. Because just because your boyfriend cheated on you does not mean he's a narcissist and he has a personality disorder. Let's stop. And just because your friend always lies to you, even when you really think that something else is going on or your intuition is telling you differently, doesn't mean that your friend is gaslighting. Your friend is probably just a liar. Let's stop. And also with this whole Will Smith thing about celebrities witnessing Will Smith smack the fuck out of Chris Rock, um, people, not everybody was fucking traumatized by that event. Let's stop. Let's stop using mental health language 
all willy-nilly to describe certain things that are happening in our lives because I'm pretty sure there are other ways that we can describe them without inappropriately and misusing, <laughs> mislab- like mislabeling, misrepresenting, misdiagnosing one another. So what we're going to do today is we're going to bring out our handy dandy DSM-5. And what is that? That is our Diagnostic Statistic Manual, <laughs> fifth edition, that we're going to use to actually look at what is the criteria for narcissism. What is the criteria for PTSD or having trauma? And what is Gaslighting. Yeah, we're going to look at those. Even though gaslighting isn't in the DSM-5, we are going to look at a real specific definition of gaslighting by credible sources. And we're going to talk about where gaslighting actually comes from and what that means. Yeah, we're going to break it down because I'm just tired of all you people using these words inappropriately. So let's get into it. All right, y'all. So I definitely had to cut that because I ended up like like recording that episode and didn't like it. So I was like, scrap it. So we're about to go into it um, right now. I'm also trying to figure out really like the best recording devices and the way to record this podcast. I'm playing around with different platforms and different things. And I'm finding like My phone actually sounds pretty good to record and then just upload it to my computer. But I feel like that shouldn't be the case when I have a whole setup with a mic and everything. But we're going to figure that out. We're going to see how this goes, see if you can hear background noise, how that is. And if I will continue. See, right now I hear a siren as soon as I start. And there's never sirens in the burbs. But of course, as soon as I start filming this, there's sirens in the background. Um, but you may or may not been able to hear that. I have no idea. Um, but today's topic is definitely going to go to let's stop, right? So I said, let's stop misusing mental health language and let's get into what really is what. So I think I wanted to start off with, um, narcissistic personality disorder. A lot of times people will say when they're in relationships that my boyfriend or my significant other is narcissistic, he's controlling, um, And I think a lot of times people don't realize that narcissistic or being narcissistic is a personality disorder. Like it's not necessarily something that should be taken lightly. And a lot of times people will say that that's what they're experiencing. So I wanted to wanted to read um, the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder, which is within the diagnostic um, criteria like the DSM. So it's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. Um, fifth edition, which is basically the uh, psychologist's Bible is kind of our reference point anytime that we're in the process of diagnosing. And um, it has the criteria for all mental health disorders. And so when we go and flip towards the back, um, looking at and I have like the the reference book, um, narcissistic personality disorder. So it describes it as a pervasive pattern of grandiosity and fantasy or behavior, a need for admiration and lack of empathy, beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts, as indicated by five or more of the following. So hence, look, it's a variety of contexts. So this person can't just, you're saying this person is narcissistic. It can't just be shown in your relationship. It has to be in multiple contexts, right? 
So this first is has a grandiose sense of self-importance. It de- exaggerates achievements and talents, expects to be recognized as superior without commensurate achievements. So when you think about grandiosity, you think about someone who is bragging, but who's bragging without pretty much any rights. Like they have really nothing to show. Again, their bragging are the things that they're exaggerating about these achievements they're not really commiserate to anything that they've actually gained. It kind of reminds me if you've been watching like Finding Anna um, on Netflix, kind of how she had this grandiose sense of self-importance of how she was contributing to her um, foundation. And so I think um, and you have to watch that. It's really good about um, how she kind of scammed her way through. And um, and it speaks on white privilege as well. But I think that's a good example of grandiosity or a grand. Someone is very grandiose. Um, the next criteria is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. Um, that kind of reminds me, honestly, if we are trying to just make this like, who does that remind you of? Um, again, we're not going to try to pick one by one, but just to give more insight into this criteria, I'm thinking more of someone who um, may be like a Kanye personality who's very feels like they have can have unlimited success and power and they're obsessed with gaining those things. Um, also believes that he or she is special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other special or high status people or institutions. Uh, number four, requires excessive admiration. Number five, has a sense of entitlement, unresponsible, unreasonable expectations of especially favorable treatment or automatic compliance with his or her expectations. Number six is interpersonally exploitive, takes advantage of others to achieve his or her own ends. And so I think a lot of times people take number six, criteria six, and go with it and say, oh, they're narcissistic. Because, But just because you're manipulative does not mean that you are narcissistic. And we're going to get more into that when we talk about gaslighting. Um, seven, lacks empathy, is unwilling to recognize or ident- identify with the feelings and needs of others. So lacking empathy and just not wanting to provide empathy, that's different, right? So sometimes people can provide empathy, but they're just being petty or they're being mean. Um, and that's kind of not the same thing as having narcissistic personality disorder. Um, is often envious of others or believes that others are envious of him or her as number eight and number nine shows arrogant, haughty behaviors or attitudes. So that those are the nine criteria. And remember that in order to be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, a person or an individual has to meet at least five or more of those criteria. So again, I think that gives more perspective into what it actually means to have narcissistic personality disorder, because a lot of times people will say, oh, my partner is narcissistic. Um, this is, you know, something that I'm experiencing. I don't understand why he does X, Y, and Z. He cheated on me or all of these things where sometimes it's really like that person was just a bad significant other. Like that person was a <laughs> a bad boyfriend or bad girlfriend, but doesn't necessarily mean that they are narcissistic, right? There can be other reasons why people may be acting the way they are. And what I found that a lot of times people act the way they do in relationships because of how they were raised more so of like how they learn how to function in relationships, how their family communicated, how their family solved problems. A lot of times people don't realize that 
their behaviors are problematic or that they're doing something that is wrong until they enter into a relationship and they either are in conflict with someone else. And a lot of times people don't like to take accountability and say, I'm doing something wrong. They're like, I've always been this way. But what is what is life if we do not grow and we figure out um, just because we've always been doing something doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right way or a healthy way of functioning. Um, so I, I feel like that's typically where we go into um, some issues when it comes to narcissistic uh, personality disorder. And, you know, another thing, uh, narcissistic personality disorder is really rare, like fewer than 200,000 U.S. cases per year. Experts estimate maybe like up to 5% of people have NPD. So, again, it's very rare that someone will have narcissistic personality disorder. So they may have some traits, but to have all of those, um, again, either five or more, it's really, it's really rare. Um, but let, yeah, let's move on to um, now gaslighting. I definitely want to talk about this one because I hear people talk about gaslighting all the time, right? Um, usually because it ends up being, again, like an argument or a disagreement. And because maybe the other side is not being accepted or the per- other person is not agreeing with whatever the person is saying that they uh, automatically go, oh, you're gaslighting me. Um, You're making it seem like what I'm saying isn't true, but it's in the reality, I'm just not agreeing with you. So we ask, and I remember my friend asked me too, she was like, tell me again, like, what is the definition of gaslighting? Because I'm pretty sure that's not what I'm doing. And it wasn't. Um, And so let's go into the definition. This is from Psychology Today. And we're going to say, this is what they say. They say gaslighting is an insidious form of manipulation and psychological control. Victims of gaslighting are deliberately and systematically fed false information that leads them to question what they know to be true, what they know to be true, often about themselves, which I think is is key that they they're led to question themselves. Right. So I think you know yourself the best. So if you someone starts to make you question who you are, that can definitely be a form of manipulation or we start to think about gaslighting. Um, they may end up doubting their memory, their perception, and even their sanity. Over time, a gaslighter's manipulations can grow more complex and poignant, um, making it increasingly difficult for the victim to see the truth. Right. So I think it's interesting, too, about where gaslighting comes from. Um, The term gaslighting comes from a 1938 play called Gaslight. Um, And I think there was a film adaptation um, sometime later. But basically, um, in this play, there was a woman who was married to a man. Um, And I think it took place in London. And so the woman was kind of, uh, I guess you can say, psychologically delicate. Um, And she married this like suave, debonair, controlling um, and creepy man. Right. And so they purchased a home in London. It's like multi-story. And decades before, I guess a rich old lady lived there. So I think it used to be like a haunted house. Like she, I think she left rubies and valuable rubies in the attic or somewhere or in the house. And then I think she died and no one knew 
about, you know, where the rubies were. It was just kind of like a haunted story about this woman who died in the house. But anyways, they had purchased this house um, and no one had been willing to live there, but they decided to move in for some apparent reason. And so it became apparent that the woman or the wife uh, was having a hard time and she was repeatedly like misplacing items and she was being blamed by her husband for taking things when she claimed um, innocence, Um, seems to imagine events that aren't real and increasingly becomes to doubt her own sanity. But it becomes clear that she isn't crazy after all and that her husband is actually gaslighting her. So hence the name of the the movie. So what he was doing was the husband kind of regularly uh, prowled about the attic and he was searching for those, I guess, rubies that were never discovered. And he hadn't been able to like find them. But as he searches, he turns on the attic gas lights, uh, which causes the lights in the rest of the house to kind of dim and flicker. And after all, this is kind of again, 1880. So before electricity. And so the wife noticed this, but others, including like the maid and other people, I guess, like service people in the house was like, girl, it's just like you're, you stress, girl, you stress. Like, it's just your mind. It's just your mind. Um, and so again, it was kind of this belief that things were like, the lights were flickering in the house, but everybody was telling her that, no, it's not the lights, it's you. So again, that's kind of where gaslighting come from, where people are made to question themselves. Like she knew that she was really being able to see the lights flickering and things were happening, but, um, people were saying they weren't really happening when they were. So that is where gaslighting comes from. And so I think it's important that when you think about gaslighting, it's kind of um, related to narcissistic personality disorder because gaslighting is a form of manipulation that someone who has narcissistic personality disorder may use. Now, do you have to be NPD, which is narcissistic personality disorder, to gaslight? Not necessarily, but they are um, related to one another. And they're both, again, something kind of rare. Now, just because someone is manipulating you doesn't necessarily mean that they are gaslighting because manipulation can come in different forms. Like children can manipulate their parents into into buying them something, but doesn't mean your child is gaslighting you, right? So, um, so basically to recognize a gaslighter, um, a gaslighting can be more effective and successful than most pe- people may imagine. Usually you would see this maybe by domestic abusers or again, narcissists. Sometimes you might see it with like cult leaders. It's a very, very strong form of manipulation. So again, it's not something that would just come about like would again, like in a relationship, which it could, I'm not saying it can, but it's very rare that everybody on Instagram is dating on, um, someone who's gaslighting and is a narcissist. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so I told you kind of the difference between manipulation, um, and gaslighting. And then I guess to just look at some of, um, how it kind of begins, Um, A relationship with a gaslighter may seem to start out quite well. They may praise the victim on their first date and immediately confine in them, uh, such as like giving disclosure. They may also do this thing uh, that I talked about with my friend. We talked about love bombing, especially, and I'm going to have an episode about dating online. I think I'm going to bring in a friend for that one. Uh, But people, when you date online, you notice that I'm not again, I'm not saying that they're gaslighting, but 
they're love bombing. But um, love bombing is basically when people just rush into giving you like words of affirmation without even really getting to know you, which can be kind of creepy and weird. Um, so they quickly establish like this trust quickly. They're given before any intimacy has been established. They're just disclosing all kinds of things. They're giving you words of affirmation. Um, and the more quickly a victim becomes enamored, the more quickly the next phase of manipulation can begin. So that's pretty much, um, gaslighting. I think that I'll, that I kind of want to talk about, about that. Um, but there is still to, I just, last thing is just like gaslighters can lie about simple things. Uh, but the volume of misinformation just kind of grows over time. So that's when we're thinking too, because a lot of times people will say, Oh, my boyfriend or girlfriend was lying. They're gaslighting me. But the volume of misinformation grows over time and the gaslighter may accuse the victim of lying if he or she questions the narrative, right? They typically deploy occasional positive reinforcement to confuse the victim, but at the same time, they may attempt to turn others against the victim, even their own friends and family by telling them that the victim is lying or delusional. So I know a lot of, again, people lie in relationships, right? People lie, people cheat, people do some of the negative things in relationships. Um, and it, it can be easy to think like, oh, someone's gaslighting me, but really to think like, is this person really like, for instance, if a guy cheated in a relationship and you were like, oh, I, I, I saw something or you something you got a clue or something that he cheated. And he's like, no, that didn't really happen. This is not it. And he's like denying, 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 denying. And you know for a fact you saw what you saw. Um, in that sense, I don't necessarily think that it would be gaslighting unless this person does this continually among different things, right? Just to get you to a certain place of being in that relationship, right? So I think it's it's a little different because sometimes people will just deny things because they don't want to tell the truth. But it's a difference when you deny because you want to, again, make someone believe something that is not there. Again, that's the kind of the form of the manipulation there that you, you're getting them to be feel like that person is delusional. And it may go to the uh, the the impact of isolating that person from other people who would validate what they're actually feeling. So isolating that person. Again, usually when we see narcissism, gaslighting, it's in abusive relationships, all right? So... So it's important to know that misusing the word gaslight can shut down otherwise productive conversation because gaslighting is often used like in an accusatory way when somebody may just be insistent on something or they're trying to get you to understand their perspective or influence you. And again, that can be a form of manipulation, but it doesn't mean necessarily that someone is gaslighting you. Um, and it's not really to divide, like usually when someone is trying to get you to understand their perspective or trying to change or influence your perspective, perception that it's not necessarily to devalue your perception of reality or your lived experience or remember that term of kind of deny who you are or what you know of yourself but it's rather to push you to consider another perception or experience in addition to your own so that is key too that gaslighting isn't that I want you to understand where I'm coming from and you can in addition to whatever you're thinking 
gaslighting is that I am totally wanting to erase or take away from who you are and whatever you're believing. Um, and that is the indeed the manipulative in execution. It's without the goal to undermine or deny your perspective. That's not gaslighting. If I'm not trying to undermine or deny what you think and I'm still respecting your thoughts, then that's not gaslighting. Now let's take it. Some people are horrible communicators and they not they may not be trying to listen to your perspective. They just may be trying to just push theirs onto you. But just because they're a horrible listeners or they're not listening to you doesn't mean that they are gaslighters or they're gaslighting you. So let's be clear on that. Just just to put some of that information out there, it is a very serious accusation when someone is gaslighting or when someone is narcissistic. All right, so the next thing, we're going to move on along to trauma, right? Let's go to trauma. So the reason why I kind of wanted to talk about trauma is because um, as of late, there has been you know, again, I'm kind of filming this a little late, like some weeks out. But again, the Will Smith thing is still in the news about how Will Smith um, slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars, right? It's big, made big headlines. It's still in the headlines. I think now he's been suspended for 10 years from the Oscars. I think his Netflix movie is on pause. Like it's still trending, right? Um, And one thing I think a lot last week, not so much this week, but last week, I saw a lot of like celebrities um, expressing or talking about their experiences, whether they were at the Oscars, whether they saw the Oscars um, from backstage or wherever they were in the audience. And a lot of celebrities were saying that they felt traumatized by the events and Um, I think Wanda Sykes was saying that she felt traumatized and she was like backstage and didn't really see it personally. And then I think Cheryl Underwood was saying that she also felt um, traumatized and she didn't know or she felt like she was going to be worried now when she gets on stage and does comedy, like if someone is going to slap her. So again, it's been all of these um, celebrities talking about... um, trauma and trauma being traumatized and I wanted to point out that you know I don't want to be insensitive to anyone's feelings or what anyone has experienced but there is a grave difference between being shocked and being traumatized and so when we look at um, the definition of trauma and we look at this definition from APA again American Psychological Association they uh, define trauma as an emotional response to a terrible event like an accident, a rape, or a natural disaster. Immediately after the event, shock and denial are typical. Longer-term reactions include unpredictable emotions, flashbacks, strained relationships, and even physical symptoms like headaches or nausea. While these feelings are normal, some people have difficulty moving on with their lives. And again, psychologists can always help these individuals in five constructive ways of managing their emotions. So granted, you may need to go to therapy after going to the Oscars because, again, it could have been shocking and it could have definitely had an impact on your emotional state and your mental well-being. But to say that something is traumatizing definitely has to come from a place that it either triggered you or you're having like flashbacks, you're continuing to think about what happened, it's impacting your day-to-day functioning, um, 
that is when we start to see like, okay, that this was an event that really traumatized you. You're having nightmares that maybe, you know, you might have unpredictable emotions, maybe anger or sadness, and you don't really know why. These are things that are related to trauma and being traumatized. And it has to be, again, it's all surrounding this specific event. Again, people can be traumatized for long-term periods. And then it also can be like brief or short periods of trauma where people may experience it for like, like 30 days or less, but it's all about thinking um, about how the, the symptoms, again, like we're thinking if you can be shocked and you may can be like, oh, in denial about some things, but is it consistently replaying in your mind? Are you always thinking about it? Or do you kind of, did you block it out of your mind? Did you not remember those things? So again, I think it's, um, again, a more severe level of shock when we think about trauma and what it can, it kind of literally shocks the body. It not just shocks you in, the, in your in that emotion in that moment, but it shock, shocks you long term. And when I think about trauma and the people who could have been traumatized by, again, the Will Smith event or the, the fiasco or however uh, you would like to define it or call it, I think the main people are is Chris Rock because he was the one who was abused or was uh, in, uh, assaulted. And, and then it's also Will Smith. And so when I think about, you know, Chris Rock, again, I think about trauma just that he was at work essentially, and he was assaulted at work and it was very unexpected. And now if, you know, if Chris Rock has been thinking about this over time, and especially because people have been talking about it and asking questions about it, I can understand where he may have some been traumatized by that event. Honestly, it makes sense. Um, It even makes sense to me that maybe Will Smith's reaction to Chris may have also been built in trauma. Um, I know recently Will Smith has um, had a, a memoir titled Will and, you know, it's been very um, popular and he did a lot of interviews with like Oprah and I've been listening to different people talk about it. I still haven't read it, but I know that in that book, he talked a lot about the trauma growing up and being in a household of domestic abuse and witnessing his mother um, being um, hit or being beaten by his father and constantly how his father was an alcoholic and had a violence and aggression issues or anger issues. He talked extensively about how he wished as a child that he could avenge his mother, that he could help her, that he could interfere or do something to change it, but he couldn't. And that a lot of times he felt like comedy and making people laugh. He knew that people weren't going to be fighting if I was making them laugh. Like people weren't going to be angry or, you know, fighting if they were laughing. And so that's a lot of one of the main reasons where he felt like he was relying on like his comedy and, and doing that. And so if his inner child of again of not being able to avenge his mom or if that never was able to take place to me it makes sense why sitting there in the oscars and now again we're talking about the oscars again um but it would make sense why he would feel like if that inner child rose up, if he, it has not been resolved, it has not been fully processed in therapy, then it would make sense why that inner child, when he, when he saw that his wife was, again, put in a compromising position and was unhappy or dissatisfied or maybe even embarrassed, then it makes sense why he would 
in an effort that he was not able to avenge his mom, he avenged his wife in that that instance, or he took up for his wife in that space. And again, if that if that has been something that has not been healed, it would be an impulsive reaction again from trauma. From usually, again, we usually have our fear responses. And what do we do? We either sometimes we may freeze. We sometimes we may run away from the situation, um, flight, or sometimes we might fight. And that would be making an impulsive reaction or decision in that moment based off of our fear response and trying to protect ourselves or protect, you know, defend ourselves in that moment. That's what our brains normally do. And so I think definitely that he did that in that moment. And that came from, again, that inner child that may not have been resolved. So if we're thinking about trauma, again, I don't know about the celebrities and Wanda Sykes and whoever was backstage or whoever witnesses and all these white people who also feel so like, oh my God, I'm so traumatized by this. But if we're thinking about who are Who's the players who are probably traumatized? It's probably Will has some unresolved trauma, and then it's also Chris who probably has new trauma because of this. Now he could or could not. I don't know, but I'm saying if we're thinking about who could have trauma or trauma-related issues, it could be them. Now I could say if there could be people in the audience, if they've been in similar situations, or maybe it could have been a trigger for them. I don't know, but I just again. The same thing, like I said, about narcissism, the same thing I said about gaslighting. I'm not saying that it cannot exist in people's relationships. I'm not saying that it cannot be true to you or what someone is saying um, that you see on Instagram or social media. But the thing about it is, is that it's not everybody's case. Everybody isn't going through that. Um, and that's why we have to have that discernment of, like I said, sometimes what we contribute to the conversation. We sometimes have to have that discernment um, as well as when we see things and know that not everybody can be experiencing that. And just because it may be one criteria, again, like we think about narcissism, it was multiple criteria. Just because it was one thing that that person is doing doesn't mean that that person should be labeled as um, narcissistic. The same thing, and again, I'm not going to go into depth about this, but the same thing about bipolar disorder. A lot of times people would loosely say, oh, she's bipolar or she's bipolar. Again, another way that we need to stop misusing and mislabeling mental health language because just because someone is in a mood or has mood swings does not necessarily mean that person is bipolar. A lot of people have mood swings. I have mood swings. Am I bi- bipolar? No, it's it's totally different than what people are thinking like, oh, she was fine two seconds ago. Now she's cutting up. That has nothing to do with like being bipolar. Maybe she's emotionally dysregulated. I don't know, but doesn't mean that that person has bipolar disorder. So really being careful of the language that we're using, because again, mostly the only people that can diagnose and mentally diagnose or label people with these disorders or mental health illnesses are people who are certified in mental health treatment or have uh, are mental health professionals or licensed psychologists. You have to have some type of certification or licensure to be able to diagnose or in label people with certain um, disabilities as well as mental health um, disorders. So it's important that if you are someone who is not of that, um, that you are 
careful not to be labeling people. Going back to labeling, it's important that we don't label our children or label our significant others and spouses and relationships. Even if sometimes their behaviors do align with some of the things we see, it's important to, instead of label the person, label the behavior. Let them know what you're seeing in their behavior and not necessarily the label, trying to label them and say, oh, she's bipolar, she's nar- he's narcissistic, he's da-da-da. Don't label the person, label the behavior. Focus on the behavior. Because what happens nine times out of ten when we start to label people and we say, oh, that person is lazy or that person da-da, people start to take on those labels. And they start to know that that's how you perceive them. So they don't really put in much effort. And they, because they, they know that that's how you perceive them or that's how they're being, being perceived. So it's important to label the behavior because behavior can always be changed. I can't change who I am, but I can definitely change my behavior. So it's important we really pay attention to the labels that we're using so that we aren't contributing to the stigma of mental health and that we're really focusing on really supporting and not trivializing the pain that others may actually be experiencing. Because again, these things are real, that there are people in abusive relationships who are receiving psychological abuse from their partners, from family members, from people that they know. So it's it's good, it's important that we don't trivialize their pain and real things that people are going through. That we find different words to reflect that and maybe, again, focusing on behaviors and what we're seeing that person do rather than just labeling. So with all that being said, I think um, this is going to pretty much wrap up this episode. Just really have discernment in the language that you use when it comes to mental health, uh, whether it's bipolar, narcissism, gaslighting and all of those things. And I hope that you go into this week and pour into yourselves in some way. And I will see you on the next episode of Champagne Sunday. Peace.